Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Survey after survey shows the trust in the news media is at an all-time low. And it's not just the left-right divide. A recent study by the American Press Institute reveals that not all Americans universally embrace core journalism values, and that the trust crisis may be better understood through people's moral values, even more than their politics. When journalists say that they're just doing their job, the problem is that many people harbor doubts about what that job should be. Couple this with an ever-changing media landscape driven by economic forces, the political bifurcation of news via the long tail of the internet, the news entertainment nexus, celebrity culture, and now cancel culture. And it makes for an environment that has very little to do with getting to the truth. Maybe democracy doesn't die in darkness, but in the chaos of competing truths. Joining me to talk about this today, I'm joined by Robert M. Smith. He's a former New York Times White House and investigative correspondent. He's a graduate of Harvard, Columbia's Graduate School of International and Public Affairs, as well as its Graduate School of Journalism, and a graduate of Yale Law School. In addition to his journalism career, he's worked in law firms, ran overseas litigation worldwide for a major bank, founded his own trial law firm, and served in the administration of Jimmy Carter. He's been a barrister of the Inner Temple in England and was director of mediation in an international center in London. It is my pleasure to welcome Robert M. Smith here to talk about his new book, Suppressed, Confessions of a Former New York Times Washington Correspondent. Robert, thanks so much for joining us. Jeff, thank you very much for having me here today. Well, it's a delight to have you here. When we talk about journalism today, is it fair to say that we need to talk about it pre- and post-internet? Is is that a dividing line in the way we look at journalism today? In part because of clickbait culture and that sort of thing, the uh, range of credible entirely and entirely non-credible sources, I suppose, but it's more than that. It's a culture, in my mind, it is just my opinion, of course, uh, of what has happened to journalists themselves. That is, in my ancient day, I suppose now, we hung, we cling very tightly to the notion that we were independent and impartial and we had to be absolutely neutral. And that was the ethos that certainly pervaded um, the New York Times Washington Bureau when I was there and the paper as a whole. And I cite the Times only because it was, and I, I think fairly put it still is, um, a leader in the media world, if not the leader to which others, other media outlets look with trust. And uh, I think that culture has shifted. I think that journalists post Watergate, post Woodward and Bernstein, um, perhaps many of them have a different notion of journalism, which is a sort of advocacy journalism or less than um, or impartial journalism. And that uh, forms this culture in an extremely, in my mind, pronounced way. And if that's the model set, then the idea of neutrality has been greatly diminished, Jeff. Is the idea of journalism objective the exception rather than the rule? Certainly if we look at the long history of newspapers, for example, 
and and the people that have owned them, whether it was William Randolph Hearst or so many others over over the decades, over centuries, that oftentimes advocacy journalism has been more the rule over the years. It it may have been, depending on what time period uh, you're talking about, what culture you're talking about, and the uh, journalistic uh, expectations. For example, I've lived... Uh, a couple of times in, in France, and I used to have, and I, I found it odd at the time, um, I used to have to read three papers. I had to read uh, daily uh, Le Monde uh, to get the view of uh, the world from the left. I had to read Le Figaro to get the uh, view of the world from the right. And then once a week, uh, there's this wonderful investigative uh, newspaper uh, weekly uh, in France called uh, Le which has uh, remarkable sources in uh, the French uh, government. Um, And I had to read the three to to get some sense of what was going on. And now it seems to me, uh, again, my opinion, that we're in that modality in the United States. I mean, folks uh, on the right uh, read publications uh, and watch uh, TV outlets and so on on the right. People on the left tend to do, uh, to watch and listen to and read outlets on the left. So it's a, it's a, a schism. And I'll tell you, Jeff, if I may, just leap to this, one of the impulses that had me re, uh, write the book was this. We live in a divided country. We all know that, completely divided. And we live in a country, as you were kind enough to point out at the beginning, uh, where people don't believe the press. They simply don't. Uh, and with reason in some cases. I mean, they don't find it to be factual. So in a normal time, in an earlier time, a credible press would have had the capacity, in my mind, to bring together those on the left and those on the right and help heal this national divide by showing folks on the left what the ones on the right were like and vice versa and showing the commonalities in our national life. Can't do that anymore because people don't believe it. But are there examples of that ever being done, really, of using the press as a way of bringing those conflicting points of view together? I mean, you talk about the French example, which is a a good example, but even there, as you say, you have to read three newspapers in order to get a a balanced point of view. Right. Uh, But we didn't used to have to do that in the United States. It's a much more recent phenomenon. And if we didn't have to do it, if we didn't have to do it, if the press spoke to us of our commonalities, or as the Tuckville said, uh, in the 18th century, the newspapers, the only, I'm paraphrasing, is the only thing that comes to you daily uh, to your doorstep or or, or, uh, front door and speaks to you of the common wheel. Well, it doesn't anymore. And, and I guess the question then is, to sort of bring it back to, to where we started, does the Internet make that impossible? Does the long tail and the ability of people to go to so many different outlets, not only left, right, and center, but, but so many variations on those, really make that impossible forever? I don't think so. I think uh, you may put me in the sheer, silly, <laughs> naive, optimist, category. I mean, yeah, people, some people like vanilla, some like chocolate, some like uh, hot bed sundays and so on. But I think there's a tremendous premium 
uh, even in, or in the business world as well as in the rest of society, but particularly in the business world, I suppose, the commercial world, on reading something that is neutral and it's true. And if uh, a paper offers that and you can find that in one place or, or hope to, then you can read that paper. And I, I do think that the Times occupied that position. It clearly doesn't. New York Times occupied that position. It clearly doesn't anymore. So the answer to your question in my mind is uh, I think it makes uh, terrific commercial sense uh, to have a paper or a media outlet like the Times uh, that actually is neutral and, and straightforward journalism. Um, I think it, it pays, so to speak, uh, commercially. But beyond that, I think people really would like that and would not have this enormous distrust if they could be given a product uh, that spoke uh, neutrally and truthfully from their point of view if there were an accepted instrumentality. It's interesting that you talk about the commercial context because one thinks about the financial world and, and news in the financial world, for example, or the business world, where where truth or what passes for truth gets to be determined and valued every day by the markets themselves. And and, and things that, that ultimately turn out to be not true, you know, the market reflects that or the market reflects what the truth is within a, within a business or commercial, as you say, context. There is no equivalency, it seems, with respect to other kinds of news. Well, I, I would say only this, I suppose. <clears throat> Excuse me. You know, the New York Times got in the ring and began slugging it out with uh, former President Trump. There's no question about that. I mean, I, in, in my book, uh, Suppressed, I, I, I compare coverage by the AP, the Associated Press, and the Times, and you wouldn't know uh, often sometimes that you're reading the same story about the same event. So there's no question it, it did that. But the interesting thing, to answer your question directly, is uh, that was good for Trump because his supporters didn't like the Times, and the notion he was, uh, he was slugging out with the Times helped him politically. And at the same time, the Times' readership uh, circulation and therefore profit uh, rose during this era in which it was in the ring, in my mind, with Trump. So it was profitable. Uh, I'm not saying there was a causal, causal link. I'm not saying the Times deliberately got in the ring because of the money element. I'm not saying that at all. But I'm saying that was the result so that it was profitable to slug it out with the president in that fashion. So does it have an economic impact, this partiality? Yes, it can. One of the things that drives that is, is the nature of what that economic base is. It was a very different economic base when the paper relied on advertising against the paper versus a subscription model. I mean, the Times, for example, got 65% of its revenue today from subscription. And it creates a, a stronger pressure, really, for bias to a particular audience in order to keep that subscription revenue going. Yes. And, you know, if you'll forgive me, it's, it's programs like yours that one hopes um, help educate an audience to what they ought to be seeking in the press, not necessarily to be blunt about it, 
a mirror of themselves, but something which is an accurate reflection of the society and what's happening in it. And if we had that and could trust it and could look into that sort of mirror, maybe we wouldn't be divided down the middle 50-50, which I think is an enormous uh, basic problem to this society. My, but my bias is, I, uh, just to make it clear, my, my bias is that for almost 30 years now, I've been an international commercial mediator here and in England and Europe. And I would like to see this this divide, obviously, healed. And I think that the media is unfortunately not only not helping heal the divide, but exacerbating it. I mean, I guess that's a good part of the question, whether or not the media is simply reflecting the divide and responding to it or whether it's in some way driving it. Well... I'm not a sociologist, and I I haven't uh, I certainly don't have the statistics, and I'm not sure how one would exactly measure that. But it's not helpful when you're eating your breakfast cereal or in front of the computer and and essentially tuning in, so to speak, to those uh, elements of the media that reinforce your view and not giving you the contrary view or anybody else's view. That can't help but reinforce your own feelings, predilections, and, and view. When you talk about elements of the, the media, like let's use the New York Times continued as an example, the degree to which the bias that you're talking about is kind of an unconscious bias or reflexive or intentional, talk about that. I start with the caveat that I'm not at the Times now and haven't been there for quite some time, long time. Uh, but I obviously still have journalists uh, as friends. It's the culture in my mind has changed as I uh, alluded to at the beginning of our conversation, Jeff. I, young, younger journalists uh, have in mind a different notion of what journalism is. And, you know, if you're running the New York Times, if you're the executive editor, the editor, whatever, national editor, you are, to some uh, large extent, um, beholden to your troops. I mean, if they have this, not, what can I call it, non-neutral advocacy view of their ideal functioning, that's going to uh, affect you and your choice of stories and your editing of those stories. So it seems to me from reading the paper and, and watching the news about it and all that sort of stuff that uh, the, the Times is uh, reflecting this cultural shift, societal shift in, in the notion of uh, what journalism is. And I, I was shocked, but put it down to my naivete, perhaps, <laughs> to find that there's a journalism school uh, faculty in, in San Francisco, and I, I'm not going to identify it, but where, where it is absolutely dedicated to advocacy journalism, period. I mean, it's, it's open, uh, <laughs> I would say notorious, but in any event, public, it doesn't make any bones about it. So it's training. Uh, the students who are taking journalism at that institution in an advocacy model. And that, that is where we are. 
stay with that point a moment because I think it's an interesting one with respect to that is where we are. And is it even possible to go back to a different form, a different style, one that may have been the norm 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago? I don't know because I, I honestly can't predict the future. I I certainly have my doubts, although I, I wish, I wish upon a star uh, sort of thing. Uh, I... Uh, I don't know if Americans accept as they do and plunk their money down as they now do for the voice that they want among all the voices. And if papers are driven by the economics as to some large extent, I suppose they must be, then I, I don't see how exactly we solve this problem. Um, I, I can't, un- unless the Times, for example, could or, or some other major paper uh, or a major institution could pull itself back to, the, to a stance of neutrality and be a leader again. And that would be a model, in a sense, for uh, other media institutions to imitate. Uh, you know, the Times used to, uh, in, in my day, and, and it doesn't have to anymore, uh, put out at uh, around 9 o'clock or so at night, I guess, <laughs> excuse me, um, that what we're called the frontings, that is to say, the choices that its group of editors, you know, sitting almost in this uh, this conference room like the like the the clergy in, in Chartres Cathedral or something, deciding on what the most important stories in the world were that day, and in order to put them on the front page and decide where on the front page they should be, that is column A, column one, above the fold below the fold, and so on. That was an exercise that was taken with tremendous gravity and seriousness. And all these subscribers to the New York Times News Service got those frontings, as they say, around, I can't remember, I think 9 o'clock or something like that, 8 o'clock perhaps, um, from the Times, so that they could be guided as to what was really important in the world. So if we could make our way back to that circumstance, I think uh, others would follow that model. Uh, I hope that addresses your question. Right. It, it, it seems that that's impossible to do for a couple of reasons within today's context. Number one, when those papers existed, when people used to get their newspaper delivered, you'd get a paper that was X amount of space, X amount of paper that was printed every day, and it was a finite container of information. The stuff that was important made it to a certain place in the paper. The stuff that was less important or different sections or different features made it to somewhere else. But there was a finite amount of space that dictated what the news, how the news would be shaped. When you're talking about it in the context of of online and the internet today, and add to that most of it mobile internet today, that space no longer exists. The space is infinite. The determination as to what goes where is in part made algorithmically. And and it's a very different environment. It, It seems that it's hard to imagine that framework within the context of today's distribution. Yes, uh, to some extent, of course, you're uh, correct. But don't you think, Jeff, that if the 
I, I don't mean to pick on the times, but <laughs> but let's say the time. I, I you know what can I say? I grew up there. Yes, I was a correspondent there in my when I was in my twenties. Um, you know, I, covering the White House in my late twenties or early thirties. But in any event, I, the if there were a neutral, accurate, truthful, honest uh, news institution. I think people of, uh, of, of some education, perhaps, I don't know, some experience in the world, perhaps, um, would gravitate toward it. And that might, in, in my hopeful world, uh, provide the economic underpinnings for that institution. So what I'm saying is it seems to me that the New York Times since uh, the mid-19th century made its way by being uh, the trustworthy institution. And I think that some institution, maybe it be the Washington Post uh, or another, uh, if it set that standard and hewed to it, people might go there because of that. I myself uh, get the, the Times uh, daily and the Washington Post uh, uh, online. And, you know, there are times when I clearly see that, in my mind only, the Times, uh, the Post has done a better job um, uh, on stories. So I gravitate toward the Post uh, in those instances, and I read it daily. I, I have that hope. You can put me down in the foolish optimist column here. But the answer to your question is I, I do think that if there were a vendor of that sort of uh, unbiased news, it would have an audience and it would be compensated economically for doing that. It's interesting that one of the things that, that we see today, in addition to the advocacy aspect of it that we've talked about, is the personal aspect to it, where we see individual reporters, and, and in many cases it is reporters, sometimes commentators, that become celebrities, for lack of a better word, in their own right, and develop their own following, and that's something new that's been added to the equation. Yes, and that's a reflection of this uh, opinion uh, tendency. That is, uh, yes, it's more profitable, I suppose, uh, certainly uh, satisfying to the ego, I also suppose, if you're uh, a high-flying journalist covering, I don't know, the White House or something, uh, to have your own follow, your own congregation, your own following, sure, it's probably more economically profitable and gives you some independence. Uh, that's that's true. Uh, I, but that means, in my mind, that you are under pressure to give your views, your opinion. And to allow your views and opinions to shape the the your your reporting about your news about the institution you're covering. So, for example, if you're covering the White House, uh, what you're probably offering, or perhaps offering, in your own uh, blog or whatever it is, um, is your view of what's happening in the White House. Now, in all candor, uh, you know, I, I'm not going to go into my politics, but it's a matter of public record. I served in the administration of Jimmy Carter. Uh, the, the uh, you know, Trump 
if he, when he was sitting in the White House, he knew the political views uh, exactly of the chief White House correspondent of the New York Times. And he knew what he was saying about him. And uh, those things, in my opinion, were not kind and certainly were not unbiased. And they were on the front page above the fold of the New York Times. So how would you feel if you were being treated in uh, that way? I'm not, don't misunderstand, I'm not defending Trump. Uh, and I'm not blanketly criticizing the, the paper, but the result of what you've been kind enough, kind enough to ask about uh, is that it puts pressure and makes normal uh, a reporter, uh, a reporter's taking up a, a, a stance instead of remaining neutral. It accelerates that process. Right. But the, the other underlying part of that, is, and, and this is maybe not a good thing, but it, I, I would argue that it's factual nonetheless, at least today, is that people's trust in individuals, in people that they think they know or get to know because of their work, that, that, that their belief and trust in individuals is far greater than their trust of institutions, that it is institutional trust that has really been decayed. Well... I, that's true, but I, I must uh, add, uh, you you know, it's uh, those institutions uh, come in the public mind, uh, I think, to be identified so heavily with uh, a person, uh, like uh, you know the uh, public health community uh, uh, and Fauci, that uh, in a sense they're they're blended. I mean, you think of Fauci and you think of uh, COVID and COVID prevention and control and uh, that sort of thing. But it's not always the same. You, you know the old adage, and, and it has some truth. I think it has some truth even today, that, that people hate Congress, but they really like their congressperson. Um, that individual power, especially in the culture that we live in today, is so much greater than the power of institutions. Perhaps. I, I think it depends on the the, the person mm -hmm. and the institution and the institution. I mean, are you talking about the Senate Majority Leader uh, <laughs> previously? I mean, or, or you know, who are you, who are you talking? What senator are you talking about? As opposed to the Senate, I think, generally speaking, sadly, sadly, the faith of Americans in institutions like the Senate or the Congress generally, you know, it's it's quite uh, at low tide. I mean, Fauci's an interesting example because I think that, you know, his profile, his his approval rating, if you will, is far greater than that of the CDC or any other government institution. You ask if, if they trust the institution, people will say no. You ask if they trust him, they'll say yes. Right. Uh, that's that's correct. And uh, I suppose to some extent it's uh, merited. We just had a piece in the New York Times, David Leonhardt, yeah, saying the CDC, uh, you know, elevated risk aversion to the point where it was inflicting – I'm simplifying it, but right. elevated risk aversion to the point where it was inflicting damage on the American people as individuals and the American economy. So, <laughs> you know, you, you kind of wonder about the CDC, but – uh, you know, Fauci did not make that or uh, does not appear to have made that cost benefit or risk uh, uh, safety analysis uh, himself. 
and he's you know he's a personable fellow so to the extent that uh, Americans are looking uh, in a very difficult time for heroes, uh, there he is. You mentioned some school in, in the Bay Area here. What do you see going on in the education of young journalists today that either counters or fosters the kind of things you're talking about? Well, I'm not uh, currently teaching uh, journalism, um, but you can't, in my mind, escape youngsters in any field wishing to make their mark in that field. And they look to the people who are successful. And they look to the recent past, and they look to the gods or demigods in that field over the past decades, right? And I think youngsters think that investigative reporting is the bee's knees, <laughs> to take an old-fashioned term, and uh, they should. I mean, I was an investigative reporter, and I love it, but there's a big difference between investigative reporting and advocacy reporting. Both of them are seeking to find out what the facts are, but investigative reporting doesn't know the answer before it gets there, whereas advocacy knows at all times what the answer is be- before it gets there. So sometimes in my mind, to finish the thought, those two things become confounded in journalism education and in young journalists who are very eager to do well, very well-regarded reporting. I mean, I think you've put your finger on, on really the key crisis, even more than some of the other things that we're talking about, is the way in which investigative reporting and advocacy reporting have become so conflated today. Right. It's very, very unfortunate. Talk a little bit about the way in which this difference, because I think that is a key element. Back when you were at the Times, for example, how how was this seen differently than it is today? Well, you'd get your knuckles wrapped uh, if you strayed. Uh, into the world of opinion. Uh, and I, I'm not, you know, I was trained at Yale Law School years ago in the, in the spectrum of what solid evidence or evidentiary solidity is. You know, a desk is a wooden object in front of you. It's a desk, everybody agrees. And then there are more, there are much less concrete uh, items of evidence that have to be shown to be the jury to be actually uh, credible. But so it's the same sort of thing between opinion and analysis or analysis and opinion in that spectrum. Uh, You've got the fact you have a reasonable uh, interpretation of that fact analysis. And then further down the spectrum in a great way, in my mind, a good deal of distance down the spectrum, (coughs) excuse me, is uh, opinion. So, for example, uh, again, to answer you directly, I, out of experience, uh, I covered uh, in the day uh, the Pentagon and the State Department and the Arms Control Agency, and uh, I wrote about chemical biological warfare. Uh, and something occurred uh, about uh, CBW, and it was on the front page of the paper. They asked me to do uh, a news analysis of what this uh, big event meant. And I did, and I overstepped the line 
and expressed, uh, I guess, some opinion or other in the process, un- unwittingly. And uh, they, they made me peel it back and get back on track. That would, I think, from what I see, the product in the New York Times would not occur today. If you just have to pick up, I, I won't say all of the reporting, but a lot of the reporting out of Washington has that blend of undifferentiated blend of news and opinion to some extent. And I, I don't mean to be at all unkind. Being a reporter is it's hard, but it's, it's there. And I think that's really the answer to your question. It reminds me of my very first job in journalism. When I got out of the graduate school of journalism, I was recruited by Time Magazine, where I lasted for exactly a year because of this undifferentiated blend of news and opinion in a time of the Vietnam War. I, I couldn't stand it. And here we are, back to it. Well, maybe the pendulum will swing in the other direction at some point. Well, I hope so. Robert M. Smith, his book is Suppressed, Confessions of a Former New York Times-Washington Correspondent. Robert, I thank you so much for spending time with us. No, Jeff, I thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to be on here. Thank you.